economy is crumbling. They say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Port Newell. He went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs of Lady Melody Baker. I'm singing down the Dunker. Welcome to Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music and football. I'm your host, Kas Mudde. My guest today is Philip Gorski. Phil is a professor of sociology at Yale University, where he's currently also chair of the Department of Sociology and co-director of Yale's Center for Comparative Research. He is a comparative historical sociologist with strong interest in theory and methods and in modern and early Europe. Much of his work has been on the sociology of religion, including in the U.S., which includes his new book, co-authored with Samuel Perry of the University of Oklahoma, entitled The Flag and the Cross, White Christian Nationalism and the Threat to American Democracy, published by Oxford University Press earlier this year. It's an excellent yet terrifying short read and will be the main topic of our conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Phil. Great to be here with you, Cass. Let's start with my standard introductory questions. What was the first sports team you ever supported? Well, that would have to be the Chicago Cubs in the late 60s and early 70s, which is, as you know, during that very long, nearly century-long drought in between World Series victories. So uh, it taught me me how to suffer. That's very important for a sports fan. Second, what is your favorite political song? This is a slightly unusual one, which also dates me. This would be Cities and Dust by Susie and the Banshees. I think the reason it appealed to me at the time was, you know, sort of this post-apocalyptic mood during the Reagan administration when I was in college and, you know, maybe out of echoes of kind of apocalypticism, you know, that I'd heard growing up in and around evangelicalism as a kid. But, you know, looking back, I do feel like that song... There was a sort of sense of foreboding about the future and that and a lot of other music in that genre, which has proven kind of prophetic in a way. Absolutely. And finally, what is your favorite political book? So I struggled a little bit with this one, but I guess I'm just going to have to say Democracy in America was one of the first things that I read in college and got me interested in both political theory and political sociology, which are things that I'm still interested in today. And, you know, maybe encouraged, you know, kind of an idealistic but tempered picture of the possibilities of American democracy, you know, something which I think we're all very worried about today. Absolutely. So while most recent academic work on the U.S. far right was inspired by or triggered by the rise of Donald Trump, your new book seems more driven by the so-called insurrection of January 6, 2021. What is the particular significance of that event for you? Well, I guess the first thing to say is that we did start writing the book. In fact, we wrote most of it during the spring and early summer of 2020, so before the insurrection. And we're doing revisions um, around the time that the insurrection happened. And I think it was important in part just because it, I think, made visible in the most concrete way a phenomenon that Samuel Perry and I and others who've been studying Christian nationalism for a while had been warning about, I think kind of suddenly brought it into wider public consciousness. And then uh, it just seemed like the obvious way to kind of motivate and frame the book because it, you know, it was something that one could point to that I think most people really understood was an unprecedented and extremely ominous event. Right. 
Now, white nationalism is a term that is quite broadly used in the U.S., but white Christian nationalism is much less common. What do you mean by that term? We talk about it in a couple of different ways in the book. One way you can think about it is as political vision or political program, and that would include things like opposition to social welfare, support for gun rights, opposition to abortion, support for police and law enforcement. And those are in some ways all just sort of standard political positions of conservative Christians and Republicans today. What we try to do in the book is to show how those things fit together and why they fit together in the way that they do, because it's not obvious why a conservative Christian would be in favor of law enforcement, but against mask wearing, for example. So one way we try to anchor those is show the underlying coherence of this is by talking about a deep story about America. It's a kind of a mythological version of American history. History. It was something like this. America is founded as a Christian nation by Orthodox Christians. The founding documents are based on biblical principles. America has been entrusted with this special mission by God to spread freedom and religion around the world. And it's been given enormous power and prosperity in order to carry that mission out. But the, the success of the mission and also the power and prosperity is threatened by the presence of non-Christians, non-whites, non-native-born people on American soil. So that's kind of the deep story. And then the third way that we talk about it is in terms of a holy trinity of freedom, order, and violence. And that is freedom, kind of libertarian freedom for white Christian men, order for everybody else, and kind of righteous violence when necessary to uphold that order. And so that gives you sort of a sense of how the sort of the white Christian man is the lead actor in the deep story, you know, and the one who acts out this sort of freedom, order, violence, trinity. That's really how, you know, we see those seemingly contradictory political positions connecting up with one another. Right. And in the book, you actually also reference kind of how deep that is in the American culture, because all of these things directly make me think about American Westerns that I grew up with. And, and you actually speak about John Wayne, the ultimate cowboy, right? And you make a parallel to Jesus. Can you say a little bit more about that? For sure. So this very widely read book by uh, historian Christian Cobus Demez called Jesus and John Wayne, which has been making huge waves in the evangelical subculture. And basically what, you know, what she says is there's just a sort of deep contradiction between a certain understanding of American masculinity, you know, that you can see in this freedom, order, violence, trinity, and, you know, common sense understanding of the gospel message. And so the idea is, is, you know, if you can't make John Wayne into Jesus, you've got to make Jesus into John Wayne. And you can literally see this in representations of Jesus as a kind of a superhero or a cowboy or a muscular figure of some kind or another. And this goes pretty deep in American religious history. And, you know, it's not just cowboys. You know, there's like a whole theories of kind of popular figures from the kind of Puritan warrior, you know, through the frontier scout through the white Southern Redeemer, through the frontier cowboy, and maybe now today kind of the special ops soldier secret agent who are the kind of paradigmatic embodiment of this kind of hyper-masculine conservative Christian man. Now, is the concept of white Christian nationalism uniquely U.S. American or can it travel? And if so, what are other countries in which white Christian nationalism is relevant? I would say that white Christian nationalism is a species of which the genus is religious nationalism. 
which is a you know kind of a nationalism which blends religious and national identity, you know, making religion a kind of a marker of authentic culture and authentic belonging, right? So in this case, you know, the real American, the 100% true American is a conservative white Christian. And this you'll find all over the place. I mean, you know, Hinduva in India or, you know, Erdogan's version of Sunni Islam or, you know, Duterte's strange blend of Catholicism and nationalism. I mean, this is something that's very common. But there are very close cousins to white Christian nationalism in the United States. And I think kind of the taproot is a certain kind of Calvinist-inspired nationalism in which you know, the nation, whatever nation it happens to be, is understood as a you know kind of a new chosen people, the nation as a new Israel. And so you can find overtones of this in UK, especially in Northern Ireland, you know, the Protestants in Northern Ireland. You can find it also in Dutch culture up until the 60s, but even more so in the Boer culture in South Africa. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not something that's really uniquely or specifically American. And just to sort of say something about a relationship to white nationalism, and certainly in the United States, I think white nationalism has been entangled with Christian nationalism more than many folks realize. The clearest example of this would be the Ku Klux Klan, which you know we sort of think of as the pure embodiment of white supremacism in the United States. But it's important to remember that it was not just an anti-Black organization, it was an anti-Catholic organization, anti-Semitic organization, a nativist organization in that sense, really an extreme version of a white Christian nationalist organization. A few decades ago, a lot of these phenomena would have been studied under the moniker of religious fundamentalism. But you argue that white Christian nationalism is not necessarily really Christian in a more theological sense. So where does the Christianity come in? The way I, I would answer this question is I just sort of punt on the theology about, you know, who or what is really a Christian or real Christianity. That's kind of beyond my uh, read and my pay grade. But I think the reason that we call it Christian nationalism is, number one, because many of the people, most of the people who embrace it identify as Christians or identify with Christianity. And number two, because, you know, the ideology itself, the deep story, for example, you know, draws very explicitly on, on different Christian sources. And so in that sense, I think it, it's fair to call it Christian nationalism in that sense, even though there are, of course, many Christians who would regard it as unchristian, anti-Christian, heretical, so on and so forth. But again, I'll, I'll leave that one for the theologians to sort out. <laughs> right. Now, it's white Christian nationalism. Who are the key enemies here? Are these the seculars? Are these the non-whites? Are these the non-nationals? Because these are not completely overlapping groups, right? In the white Christian nationalism, can you have black Christian nationalists? Can you have white secular nationalists? How does that work? So for sure, I think this is where things do get really complicated. So I think different people can identify with white Christian nationalism for different reasons and to different degrees. You know, some people may identify more with the whiteness of it. Some people may identify more with the Christianity of it. Some people may identify with the nationalism of it or some combination of the three. 
So it certainly is possible for there to be, you know, black Christian nationalists in this sense, insofar as they, if I can put it this way, aspire to a kind of honorary whiteness or want to be accepted as true Americans or true conservatives by being hyper patriotic or hyper Christian. Though I think this phenomenon is probably more common today amongst Latino evangelical conservatives than it is amongst African Americans and even African American conservatives. And I guess the one other thing I would say is that, you know, the movement is somewhat in flux. So, you know, you do see, you know, prominent non-white leaders sort of in the fold. So, you know, some of the most prominent leaders like Nicholas Fuentes, for example, you know, what do you make of that? I mean, some people see the emergence of a kind of a colorblind form of Christian nationalism that's similar to what some have called colorblind racism, where it's more about embracing, a, you know, particular ideology or way of being or being part of a particular movement. But it's, it's definitely very, very messy. I think that the power, though, of white Christian nationalism as an ideology and a movement is that it can sort of draw so many different people into its magnetic field for so many different reasons. Now, you've already talked a bit about how long the history of white Christian nationalism is. Many people would be more familiar with the Christian right or the religious right that emerged in the 1970s and is generally associated with the anti-abortion movement and the Roe v. Wade ruling of the Supreme Court. Where does the Christian right fit in here? Was that white Christian nationalism? Because the Christian right is in the general story, not particularly linked to race. This is a great point. I'm glad you raised this. So the story that's typically told about the Christian right and the story that the Christian right likes to tell about itself is exactly this one, that they emerge as a sort of a popular revolt against leftist overreach in general and Roe v. Wade in particular, so that the, you know, the anti-abortion movement was a real spark. There's been revisionist work by a number of historians more recently. I would mention here Anthea Butler's book, White Evangelical Racism, or Randall Balmer's book, Bad Faith, amongst others, which points further back to the Brown v. Board decision as the real spark and desegregation as the real motor. And there certainly are people within the fold, such as Paul Weyrich, the uh, very important conservative Catholic activist, who said as much retrospectively that what really set the Christian right in motion was reaction against desegregation. So I think it has always been entangled with race from the very beginning. But you know, that said, uh, I just see the Christian right as it exists today is just one in a series of kind of Christian nationalist upsurges throughout American history, you know, in the early 20th century, you know, during and after the Civil War, so on and so forth. And we, in the book, trace it really all the way back to the late 17th century, where kind of the two key things that really kind of crystallized then are, first of all, the identification of blackness with enslavement and a religious justification for that. And then uh, conflicts with the Native peoples, wars with the Native peoples, which are seen in kind of apocalyptic terms. And it's really the kind of a merger of those two, those two moments that leads to the formation of this deep story of white Christian nationalism. Already in the late 17th century, we kind of point to 1690 as, you know, an approximate date where, you, where it really crystallizes. So it's very old, very, very mm -hmm. old. Now, one of the things you do in the book as well is discuss the results of surveys that you did where you have developed the Christian nationalism scale. Now, what did you learn? For example, what percentage of the population is white Christian nationalists? Are they mainly evangelicals? 
Who are there, us and them? Great questions. There's a scale. So, you know, there are people who score higher on the scale and lower on the scale. There's a, a hard core of Christian nationalists who are probably 10 or 15 percent of the population. And you could probably reckon, you know, 30, 35 percent of the general population to Christian nationalism more generally. That, that was an important finding. Another important finding is that it's not just white evangelicals. People often talk about the Christian right or Christian nationalism as if they were one and the same as white evangelicals. It's not totally wrong. You know, about 80% of white evangelicals score pretty high on the Christian nationalism scale. But you find around half of white non-evangelical Protestants, about half of white Catholics also score relatively high on the scale. So if you see Christian nationalism as something that runs across various types of Christianity, the most radical extreme forms of it actually are not in any of the above categories, but actually amongst Pentecostals. Um, this is where we really find the most radical versions. And in terms of their enemies, you know, socialism seems to be this empty signifier, so to speak, that just agglomerates all the things that Christian nationalists think that they hate and want to be against. But there are, of course, very high degrees of anti-Black animus, for example, very high degrees of nativist sentiment well that you find amongst Christian nationalists. As I read the book and the survey results for white Christian nationalists, I often wondered, isn't this just the hardcore of the support base of the Republican Party? Just like in previous studies like Change They Can't Believe In by Christian Parker and Matt Barreto found that Tea Party supporters were very similar to average Republicans. Is there a fundamental difference or is this more a more or less? Honestly, I think it's probably just different names for the same thing. You know, one of the jokes in the early aughts was that GOP stands for God's own party. You know, it's fairly clear that, you know, that the party has crystallized around a strategy of mobilizing sort of white Christian base. And you, you can even see this now in a phenomenon that a bunch of surveys have recently picked up, which is that evangelical for many people and even Christian is increasingly a political label. So you know, it's one that's often given when people are asked to identify in a survey by people who also say they rarely, if ever, go to church. It's even it's given by sometimes by Catholics or even by by non-Christians who identify with the GOP or identify as conservative. And so it doesn't surprise me that, you know, one would find extreme overlap. Like, again, because I think extreme base of the Republican Party, white Christian nationalism, two different names were pretty much the same thing at this point. I guess over a decade ago. Putnam and Campbell wrote this book, American Grace, which found the same type of thing that there was a growing group of Americans who actually did believe, but they considered themselves secular rather than Christian because increasingly Christianity was kind of being associated with the right and with the Republican Party. Does this mean that this rise of white Christian nationalism or maybe the emboldenment of it has led also to a pushback within white Christian Americans? Yeah, I think there are sort of two things that are going on. So there's no doubt that this embrace between white Christianity and political conservatism has led a lot of folks who might have been moderate or liberal Christians or churchgoers 30, 40 years ago has led them to disidentify and, and disaffiliate. 
In some cases, that means people who used to be evangelicals, they might call themselves ex-evangelicals or reconstructed Christians who still somehow think of themselves as Christians but want nothing to do with that form of Christianity. I think the bigger trend, honestly, has been the remarkably rapid growth of the so-called nuns. That is, you know, people who, when asked what their religious affiliation is, will say none. That group is now about a quarter of the population, which is about the same size as those who identify as evangelicals and, you know, much higher amongst younger age cohorts. So absolutely, I think there has been, um, you know, a kind of a counter reaction. This is one of the many things that's been driving political polarization, social sorting within the United States over the last 20, 30 years. Now, we often speak about like Fox News and the conservative media scope, but there is also a Christian media scope. And similarly, we talk a lot about Donald Trump and kind of the political leaders of this white Christian nationalism. But in your book, you also discuss several religious leaders. What is the role of religious leaders in the rise of white Christian nationalism? Because sometimes it seems as if it's just all about the Republican Party, as if it's in a sense just a party political phenomenon. Are there religious leaders that play an important role, or are these mostly grifters who just make money of the new trend within their flock? Well, you know, my own view is a lot of these people are charlatans and grifters, but, you know, again, that kind of gets into theological questions. Here's what I think I would say is that Billy Graham, starting in the 1950s, thought very explicitly a seat at the table, courted a succession of presidents, and eventually was successful. I mean, you know, the evangelical movement, certainly since the emergence of the moral majority in the late 70s and their role in electing Ronald Reagan has had very much seat at the table. And evangelical leaders like, such as Falwell or Pat Robertson or Ralph Reed or, you know, Franklin Graham have been very important rallying the troops, even in, in selecting presidential and other political candidates. So they definitely have got their seat at the table. I think one of the big shifts, certainly during the Trump years, that has gone somewhat unnoticed is that a lot of the those sort of old guard evangelicals have been pushed away from the table. And the people who are close certainly to Trump and who are most central now, kind of far-right American circles are, are again Pentecostals. And these are, you know, folks who preach spiritual warfare. You know, I don't know how many of folks saw, for example, pictures of the so-called Jericho March, right? This is this group of people on January 5th who marched in a big circle around the Capitol. Some of them, you know, chanting, others blowing shofars, you know, these ceremonial ram's horns that have a place within Jewish culture and practice. So, you know, they really see these as spiritual weapons, and they really imagine that the Capitol building were possessed by demonic forces, which they were trying to expel. And from there, it was really just one step to storming, actually st physically storming the Capitol. So that, that, I think, has been really a major shift. You know, this is not like Ralph Reed kind of sitting in front of a computer display, looking at a bunch of voter files and, you know, thinking about, you know, voter outreach and fundraising. I mean, these are folks who are, you know, really organizing for sort of insurrection at this point. And if you look at, for example, Doug Mastriano, the uh, GOP candidate for governor of Pennsylvania, he comes straight out of this milieu, as do some of the other most radical sort of MAGA candidates this year. And that brings us to the other part of the title, 
which is the threat to U.S. democracy. Where do you see this threat of white Christian nationalism come from primarily through illegal actions like January 6th or more through legal actions like the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade and the radicalization of the GOP? I think it's really both. Now, I've recently begun to argue that we're seeing the emergence of another current, powerful current, which I would call Christofascism. And this is closely associated with this kind of spiritual warfare sect and also draws in a lot of traditional white supremacist militia type groups who, you know, kind of accelerationist groups who are really seriously dedicated to, you know, civil war, overthrowing the U.S. government, engaging in terrorism and other forms of political violence. So there are those folks. And then there are also Christian nationalists of another sort who I think, you know, their vision or ideal is something more like or bonds hungry, right? Where, you know, basically you just rig the rules of the games so that they secure their place and power for, you know, a generation to come and impose a certain political, you know, almost theocratic vision on the rest of the country. So I think both things are going on. And, you know, the worry really is that there's a certain kind of complementarity and complicity between two. I mean, I think there are a lot of right-wing Christian nationalists who will just kind of wink and nod at what some of these Christo-fascist groups are doing. And, you know, you know, the Christo-fascist groups who sort of hide behind the Christian patriots, quote-unquote, or pretend that they're really fighting to uphold Western civilization or the Judeo-Christian tradition, which after all sounds a little bit more innocuous than, you know, calling for race war or saying that you're fighting against white genocide, you know, which is what often concerns them more. Right. So finally, what is the greatest misunderstanding about white Christian nationalism in the U.S.? So I think in some ways that maybe the greatest misunderstanding is that it's just a form of Christian patriotism. I mean, this is a misunderstanding, certainly on the Christian right, that does not make a sufficient distinction between patriotism and nationalism. I mean, I think you can be a Christian and a patriot, but being a patriot means, you know, a dedication to American values and institutions like, you know, freedom and equality, like rule of law and separation of powers. And that's quite different than kind of a tribal nationalism, you know, what we used, you know, used to call ethno-nationalism, you know, which is about my tribe being the dominant group in society and keeping all other tribes outside of outside of our borders. But I think it's also important for folks, secular progressives, to see that this is a difference too, that these are not just garden variety patriots. I mean, there are in fact increasingly and often quite opposed to precisely those core values that an American patriot would uphold. Christian nationalism, in other words, is anti-patriotic. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Phil. My pleasure, Cass. Thanks for having me. You can follow Phil Gorski on Twitter at at GorskiPhilip. And please buy and read his new book, The Flag and the Cross, White Christian Nationalism and the Threat to American Democracy, co-authored with Samuel Perry and published by Oxford University Press earlier this year at or through your independent bookseller. Thank you for listening to Radical. The music is from the Gonads with the classic song Karl Marx supported Millwall. And I'm your host, Kas Mudde. If you like the episode, please subscribe to Radical on your podcast platform of choice. And don't forget to rate us. Till the next time. The economy is crumbling. They say it's at its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Paul Newell. He went with Danny Baker. So you silly disco songs are the greedy melody maker. I'm seeing that a dunker playing with his.